welcome to Theology on Tap. We're so glad that you're here. Go ahead and grab a seat, uh, grab a drink, grab some pizza. We should have a lot there. My name is Justin Hare. This is Brian McGreevy, and we are really glad that you are here. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, the way, well, this is, first of all, a, a kind of a different uh, Theology on Tap than what we normally do. As you'll see in a moment, there's this giant bowl that's next to us where we have Normally what we do is we'll have a topic that we'll talk about for 20-30 minutes and then throw it open to questions. We'll still have the second part of our time where you can still ask anything you want. Uh, tonight we don't have a topic so it'll be really, you can ask just whatever comes to your mind. But you'll see these little sheets of paper around the room and the QR code on the top. That's your way of submitting any question for the time after we get done with the first part. And I think Lizzie's going to be doing the questions, so she, you'll be able to see other people's questions on there, like the ones that you would like to see asked, and she will do her best to, to ask those. And what else? We've got a, a couple announcements before we start. Uh, first of all, Easter is a big week, big week for us. Yes, and you could say that. Yes. Lot, lots going on, which is what we're going to talk about in a second, but before I get to that, we're going to jump to Easter, and I just wanted to note... We did this with Christmas. If you're in town, if you don't have family or anybody to have like a, a meal over the holidays with, we would love for you to have somebody to do that with. And this year, Chris has warmly opened up his home for Easter supper. Uh, is it lunch or dinner? It's after the 11th. It's going to be a while, apparently. So just if you're interested in, in a Late Easter, lunch. Easter meal, contact Chris, and he's going to open his family's going to open up their home. You can see that there. We. Um, I heard great things. I don't know who all was able to go to the, uh, the little party. We, we talked about last week meals, and I loved at the very end, somebody was just like, all right, the importance of actually having meals together, I'm going to host one. It was really neat, and I think like we had a good turnout, and it sounded like a lot of people had, had fun at that. So this week, we're not talking about meals. Uh, we're going to be looking at all the questions that we haven't gotten to over the last few months, which is always one of our favorite yes. ones that we've done. But before we get to that, Let's talk a little bit about Holy Week. What? Why is it called Holy Week? What's so important about this week? And if you could tell folks here in this room like one thing, what would it be about how to get the most out of this week? Well, Holy Week is really important because one of the best attested facts in the history of the world is that there was a, Jesus, a Jewish teacher named Jesus who was executed by the Romans uh, by crucifixion in 33 AD, and that he claimed to be the Son of God, and his followers claimed that he had risen from the dead. And secular historians would admit everything that I just said. And what you make of that event is arguably the most important question in your life. And Holy Week for Christians is designed to help us to focus in on that, to focus in on walking that last uh, 72 hours of Jesus's life. Uh, so we uh, mark uh, the Last Supper, uh, which is when Jesus was with his disciples and washed their feet. Uh, and after that is when he was betrayed and arrested. Good Friday uh, is called good uh, because that is when Jesus died on the cross, which was the sacrifice that procured our salvation. Um, and then that is followed 
by Easter on Sunday, and it's called Holy Week. Holy literally means set apart, um, especially set apart for God, and it is uh, the most important week in terms of the way that Jesus' life transformed reality. Yeah. Yeah, and so obviously Easter is a you can imagine, like Christmas, a really big uh, day in the life of the Christian year. We've got three services that day. Lord willing, the, the rain will hold off and we can do the sunrise service outside. But the two services inside at 9 and 11.15 are, I was blown away the first time. I mean, it's like the symphony basically shows up. It's incredible. Yeah, so there's brass, there's an orchestra, the full choir. It is, uh, as one of our priests used to say, uh, who had a very southern accent, <laughs> If that don't light your fire, your wood is wet. Exactly, yeah. Well, Jeff, um, our senior minister at St. Philip, Philip's Church, if you're new, and uh, he, I love the way he says this every year. It's like, you know, the funny thing about a resurrection is there has to be a death first. And so Good Friday, as you said, is the day that we remember the crucifixion. And there's a couple things. We, we did an outdoor Stations of the Cross last year, which if you've never done that, it's a really neat event. I mean, it was almost 200 people that were walking around, and you go to different scenes in the, the last hours of Jesus' life. That's always a big one. I love Monday, Thursday, just for me. So if you, you were going to do something besides Easter, start with Good Friday, but try to do also Monday, Thursday. That, it's not Monday, Thursday. It's Monday, which comes from the Latin meaning command, where Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples, and he says a new command I give you to love one another as I have loved you. And ultimately, that love is displayed by dying for them at the cross. And um, I'll share, I don't know if I ever told you this, but it was one of my favorite Monday, Thursday. We, we don't do foot washing at St. Philip's, but we did at the church I was at in Clemson. And so my, I think she was about five at the time, my daughter came up to do the foot washing. And um, we were in a church that not many people had ever done any kind of, they never heard of Monday, Thursday. And they definitely had never had their feet washed before and it was just as like probably appalling as saint peter was appalled when jesus said i'm going to wash your feet now um but anyways i was like all right my family goes up first and and i said all right graciana go ahead and um get in and she thought this little tr like trough which had water was basically a bathtub so she just pulls down her her clothes and hops in <laughs> in front of everybody and i'm like no Woo! no no what are you doing she's like what so um we don't do any of that. We are not that. doing that. We don't do Let's any of that. Worried. Don't worry. That's a mistake. Um, she learned very quickly about that. But no, that's, again, Jesus washed the feet at the Last Supper. We, we remember, what is that Last Supper meal? We, we do it every Sunday uh, that we have communion. And so it's a, it's a big, big day, uh, big three days, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. And it also combines the service, and in some traditions it's called Tenebrae, where we, uh, at the end of the service, will strip the altar, the church will go totally dark, and then it will describe Jesus' arrest where all of his disciples flee and leave him abandoned and alone, and then the last light goes off. So yeah. it's very powerful. It's very symbolic, very powerful. Which is really great because I'm preaching that night and no one will remember the sermon because they will think oh, about now you gotta go. the things that they <laughs> yeah. It's going to be really good. No, but the service itself, it's like... Um, it's like an Easter vigil if you've never been to one of those. It's, the, the service is so symbolic that uh, my, it's actually one of my kids' favorite, even though she's uh, had some pretty traumatic <laughs> memories about the service. Um, but anyways, well, let's dive in tonight. We, we uh, commend these services to you. If you don't have a church home, try us out. 
but and if you forgot when they were, just go to St. Philip's website. Yeah. They're all on there. Or take this sheet with you. That's fine. Yes. Um, Brian, do you want to start us off with the questions? All right. So just so you know, these are all questions that were asked that we never got to. And we sort of screen to take out any questions that are joke questions, but we do not prepare at all. So um, there's no telling what we will get here. So here we go. Anglican opinion on Henry VIII. Okay. <laughs> See, I told you. That's a joke question. Is that right? <laughs> well, Henry VIII, uh, you know, I love this because a lot of people think, well, the Church of England just started because Henry VIII wanted a divorce, but that's... That's a Not historical true. farce, right? So, what would you say? So, I would say, well, so what was the question? What what Anglican, Anglican opinions of Henry VIII. So, this Anglican's opinion and St. Philip's Anglican opinion would be that Henry VIII was one of the people that was used by God to help um, the Anglican Church uh, form in its uh, most recent iteration. So... We would say the Anglican Church's roots are in the first century in England uh, when Christianity came to England with the Roman soldiers. Uh, by the third century in England, uh, there were so many Christians in England that the church was sending bishops to conventions on the mainland. And then in 597, when the Pope sent uh, missionaries to England to convert the heathen, um, the missionaries were very surprised to discover that there were Christians already there in England. So then there was this thing called the Synod of Whitby, and the, the English church and the Irish church evolved in slightly different ways than the Roman church. And so there's a distinctiveness there, and there was this sort of uneasy cohabitation um, with the Roman uh, Catholic world, and then the Protestant Reformation broke out in Germany, and the English Reformation broke out in England, translating the scriptures into English for the first time, which was punishable by death in England. And through that Reformation, uh, there was a whole group of theologians and priests who were ready to break with the Catholic Church, but they needed the king to also be willing to break with the Catholic Church. And those two streams sort of coincided, uh, and Henry broke with the Catholic Church and the uh, newly Protestant but leaning back into some of its earlier roots, Anglican Church came out of all of that. Yeah, it's pretty good. I'd say um, not much to add to that. <laughs> uh, I, you know, he was a good, actually, the, the doctrine of Henry VIII, I mean, he was a pretty good theologian. He was mainly Catholic in his understanding. I mean, he, he became the pseudo-pope at that time, but he didn't enact any of the, a lot of Protestant doctrines which were actually, I mean, people were like, well, without Henry VIII, the Protestant Church of England wouldn't be Protestant. This is not true. There was what's called lollardy that was happening mm -hmm. uh, for uh, the lollards were those who were kind of on the ground spreading Protestant doctrine for, for decades. And so it was something that was inevitable. This was merely the occasion. Do you remember, what's, what's the little pithy phrase? It's like divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Is that what yes. it is? Yes, for it's, keeping track of all his wives. That's his six wives. Um, so he was, you know, but the thing is, like, if you're a king in that time, there were plenty of kings who were getting divorced, and they, they could sleep with whoever they wanted to. The thing was, was the pope had a vested interest in the person that he was trying to divorce, which was Catherine of Aragon, his niece? Is that what it was? Or it was something like that. Yeah, so yes. related to somebody. So, of course, he's going to say, no, you can't. But if you're really curious about that, talk to us later. Yeah, that's, that's probably enough history there. So, um, <laughs> See if you can get it. Better one. 
<laughs> All right, how can I get my family or friends to slow down and just enjoy having a meal? My parents are always in a rush to get through dinners. That's an interesting Oh, that's such a good question. Um, you could force them to listen to the podcast of our last Theology on the Gap. I think there are a couple of ways. What I would do is when you're not in a moment of conflict about it, um, to sit down with one or both of them and say, you know, I really value our time as a family. And I think that one of the ways that we can really focus on each other and the blessing that we have of being a family would be to have some more family meals together where we're not in a rush and where we literally schedule them and make them something special. Mm -hmm. um, what could I do to help to make that happen? Yeah. And I can't imagine a parent that wouldn't respond to that. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, you know, starting small too, like any changes, starting with realistic goals. And so taking the initiative, being willing to do that, and usually friends, uh, so you kind of answered the parent side of it, but w when you articulate your desire for it, and then you actually invest yourself into it, and you go all out, make the food. If you're just buying it from somewhere, that, that can be easy just to kind of go through it quickly. And set the table. Set the table. Light candles, Light the candles. have flowers, yeah. have ironed linen napkins, all of that. <laughs> but for real, like go all out and, and you will feel a difference when you actually mm -hmm. do that. It's There's something that happens inside of everyone. Turn off the that. TV, put all the phones in a different room. Put some nice music on. Yeah, that'd be yeah. good. So Our playlists are available for a small fee. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Go for it. You think we can get through all of these? It's like 25. Nope. We can do it. Do you think there is a danger in elevating humans and their writing slash accomplishments? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I agree. <laughs> We've talked about that in some. Um, yes. And just in case that might be about C.S. Lewis or Tolkien. Um, <laughs> no. Just no. in case. Um, I think you do have to be very careful about that because no person, no matter how awesome they are, is God. But the flip side of that is that people that are made in the image of God and who are seeking with their heart, soul, mind, and strength to follow Jesus Christ, we are told to imitate the examples of those who are truly seeking after Christ with their whole heart. So um, in the old days, that used to be called imitating the saints. Um, but I think for us now, people that have lived a godly life who have had a significant influence, um, we certainly didn't want to worship them, but we definitely want to learn from their example because we have really badly the disease that Lewis called chronological snobbery, which means that we think because we live now in this latest generation that we are, by virtue of that, smarter than anyone that ever lived in the past and we can throw out the whole accumulated knowledge of the human race in favor of our own experience, and that's very dangerous. Yeah, yeah. you can put them in the place of God, or you can just think that you're the center of the universe, as you said. So it's a balance between overvaluing and undervaluing uh, those people. Let's go to the next one. That's two. What's the best argument against Calvinism? <laughs> What's Calvinism? <laughs> oh my gosh. So, um, John Calvin. First, I would say, okay, so John Calvin was a 
basically French Huguenot who did a lot of work in the Protestant Reformation of trying to define doctrine, spent a lot of time in Switzerland, and Calvinism is a kind of catchphrase for his theology. However, Calvinism, I think, is widely misunderstood. And when you say the word Calvinism, um, people have 20 different ideas <laughs> about what that actually means. Some people think it means tulip Calvinism, right. which I'll let Justin explain. Some people think Calvinists just believe in predestination and that there's absolutely no such thing as free will. Um, there's a whole raft of opinions out there about what Calvinism is. But I think if you actually read what Calvin said, a lot of what gets attributed to him or lumped under Calvinism um, isn't really fair. Yeah, I think that's uh, kind of like Luther. You know, you got the first generation reformers. All of their followers tend to be very different than both Luther and Calvin, at least in the next immediate generations. So um, Calvin does tend to get a bad rap, I think. But if you read the Institutes, which is his like systematic theology, you a reading people from a different century, you might be really uh, we're, we're in favor of this. We like Augustine and we like uh, Athanasius, who are way, I mean, millennia old, but um, you'd be surprised. There'd be some people that you can actually understand. So Calvin, I think the best, the, the question was, what's the best argument against Calvinism? And um, I would say, so first of all, I do think Calvin and, and what his writings are, are probably a really helpful way of understanding what the scriptures teach. Again, I love that this question's right after the previous questions. You can make any Christian into kind of a, an ultimate person, and if they become the lens through which you read the Bible, that's a problem. That's a problem. You need to read the Bible for what it says. Um, I would say, the, and that, so Ar Jacobus Arminius was kind of his uh, theological, ideological opponent, and he uses basically what it comes down to is, does God save or does, do, do men save themselves in some capacity? Calvin said that basically at the end of the day, God is the one who ultimately saves people. Arminius and, and um, other people kind of in that camp say, well, really it's men who save themselves to some degree. Like they have to have the final say. Um, I would say that the Bible teaches that there's such a thing as grace, but there's, and Calvin would also look at free will, but the same thing, so the, the biggest argument against Calvinism would be kind of just like a, a philosophical assumption to start with that that just can't be what God would say. Um, yeah, and I would say the other thing, and I think this is where Calvin gets a bad rap, but I think some people would say that Calvin's doctrine of the church, his understanding of truth, beauty, and goodness, which we talk about a lot, the importance of the church and all of those sorts of things, that he downplays that too much. I don't think that's really fair, um, but people will say that, so I think sometimes there's pushback from that side too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, like the, the arguments, that, like universalism would be, people would say, God so loved the world that, you know, and so in a sense, Jesus, would he not save everyone? You know, the same arguments against Calvin would be the same arguments that people would put in favor of, I would say, universalism yeah. or something like that. But you have to look at what, what does the Bible actually teach? Um, and, and what did and, Calvin actually say? And what did Calvin actually yeah. say? Those are good. That's, that's pretty right. good. In your personal experience... What is it like, or what do you feel when God talks to you? Ooh. 
That's a great question. I like the experience part of it because we, we can assume a lot of things, mm-hmm. but um, I, I think for me, it's not something, I, in, I'd love to hear what you have to think on this, but uh, for me, it's, it's not like earth shattering. There's been a few times where I've sensed God's presence with me and it's been really comforting and uh, palpable, but that's pretty rare for me. When I, but it's nonetheless like supernatural every time I, I pray and I talk to God and when I open up the scriptures, hearing what God says, you want to hear God, you can open up the scriptures and literally he's speaking. That's what the Christian church teaches. So for me, it, it's not always earth shattering, but it's always penetrating the heart. And, and I think that's really important that God recognizing that he's present, that he cares about you and that he has something for you right where you are. Um, what that feels like is both comforting and sometimes, to be honest with you, I can be really annoyed and frustrated that when uh, experiencing God. And you look at places in the Bible, when they encounter God, they get angry. They wrestle with God sometimes, uh, Jacob in the, in the Old Testament. Um, so it, it's not always a super emotive thing. It doesn't have to be. And it's not always just like this really wonderful great thing you look at isaiah when he encounters god in isaiah 6 and he starts saying woe is me for i'm unclean yes. before god yes. so but in jesus christ you have the the forgiveness and the presence of god most palpable so i would say for me um it's all over the map so sometimes when god speaks to me i have the sense of when i'm reading scripture or i'm in worship that there is something that I'm just drawn to in terms of focusing, that I, I feel very clearly that God is, the way I would probably express it, is putting something on my heart or putting someone on my heart. And it's a very strong sense of focusing on that particular thing. Um, other times, there will be a, just a bolt from the blue and that's a good way to put it. I, yeah, I don't want to give a whole sermon on this, but we had a speaker a couple of years ago that talked a lot about how when you think the Holy Spirit is nudging you, you should pay attention to that and not squash it. And I used to just squash it all the time. And after I listened to him, I was like, I think he might be right. And so what happened as a result of that is that if I were, I do a lot of walking. If I was on my walk and all of a sudden this person's face came up in front of me or that person was on my mind, I would stop, I would send them a text and say, the Lord is putting you on my heart, is there anything I can pray for you about? And virtually 99% of the time, the response I would get back is, how did you know? Um, So that's just very interesting. And then there's one time in my life where I literally had a vision from God, which makes me very uncomfortable because I like to be very rational in my approach to faith. And um, I had this very strong, palpable vision from God that was visual. Uh, It was like pieces of a puzzle floating around. I can still remember the imagery of it. That's only happened once in my life, though. So, um, But it is uh, something where I think being open and listening is really important. Yeah. All right. Should I tithe? Is it an expectation to do so? Yes and no. What is tithe? 
so tithing is a standard of giving that comes from the Old Testament that is a uh, belief that part of practicing your generosity and gratitude toward God and remembering that everything that you have, everything that you're able to do is because of God's gifting in your life, that the first 10%, the first fruits should go back to God, which um, these days typically means that it goes to the church or to some sort of Christian ministry. Um, the New Testament doesn't necessarily have the standard of the tithe, but the standard is probably higher than the tithe. Um, there's uh, naturally a great C.S. Lewis quotation about this um, that says uh, that you need to give enough so that it is uncomfortable. That if you are just giving out of your excess and it's not at least a little bit uncomfortable, you're probably not giving enough. Yeah. So this was obviously from the one where we talked about money. And basically what your money is is indicating what you value the most, what you love the most. And so uh, the importance is not just, oh, you should do this because the law says so. It's actually a, um, a resistance to believing that other things are going to bring you joy. And your money that you spend will often be put in things that you think are going to bring happiness. And just like resting one day a week, it, giving your money right at the start, mm -hmm. sacrificially as you said, is a, an intentional way of resisting going to places that are going to promise much but deliver very little in terms yeah. of the joy that's on the other end of it. So that's what I would say about that. Today, there is a lack of distinction between men's and women's roles. What is the biblical view on this? Oh, this is great. I just taught a class on marriage. Yes. Uh, and it just finished. So I. And what was that great book you were looking at? It was Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage, yes. which was really good. I Should thought, only married people read that book? Thank you so much for asking. Did you, yeah, I love this. No, no, you shouldn't. And the reason is because he actually says I am this. inside your head. I know, that was great. <laughs> the last class I did on Sunday was on singleness. And so he says there that uh, it's absolutely really, really important to be single and to start looking at marriage. Because if you um, are having a biblical understanding of marriage, uh, because you will either end up overvaluing or undervaluing marriage. And it will either way cause your life to go awry. Uh, and so I think it's really important, no matter where you are, we had folks in the class that were of all sorts of different backgrounds and contexts, but gender roles, what's great about the, the chapter that he wrote there was he, he is pretty balanced in his approach. You may have noticed that men and women are different. Um, they have a lot of characteristics that are different. And depending on where you go in the world and the different times of the world, those characteristics may actually look different in some ways. But what he says is inevitably, you're going to have differences show up. And so it would be helpful to simply, A, first, don't deny them. Recognize that, that in the beginning, God did make them male and female, that they both are equal. They represent God's um, and they're both image, the image of God. The, yes. the, the image of God. And so they, they represent him in some ways down to their very DNA. And so uh, the important thing is to recognize that there's going to be differences in, in, in between men and women. And instead of trying to artificially 
come up with what those are. Observe those around you. Observe the different modes of communication, how, how they communicate, um, how, they, how they act, that sort of thing. And, and then honor and actually respect and appreciate those differences is what he, what he argues for. So, uh, the, yeah, the Bible, well, I forgot what the question was at this point, but um, that's probably a good enough place that's to it. stop for me. What would you say? About the question that Which I put said. Okay. <laughs> I really felt bad because I just went off. I forgot what the question was, but gender roles, something like that. You said your Christianity is an experience. How would you describe your experience of God? How do you meet God? Well, we kind of just answered that one. Um, I was going to say, actually, maybe that's the, the Lord nudging me, picking that one out, because I was going to say the C.S. Lewis quote before you uh, tonight, but... The, there's several times in Lewis's literature where they meet Aslan, and it's this combination of like terror and awesome wonder and joy all mixed up. That's kind of like what it's like sometimes when you, when I'm actually palpably in God's presence. It's not always the most comforting thing, and I think that's what I wanted to add. But everything else we said was sufficient. So, is it even is it even so important that our faith be rational? Again, okay, what about the sacraments? Maybe we can talk about the sacraments here as opposed to, you talked about, it's not always meant to be rationalistic, but there is a place for rationality. Yeah, I, I want to argue with the, the semantics for just a moment with great respect to the question. Uh, I think that the, the opposite of rational is not irrational when it comes to faith. And I think that uh, there is, we are called... Um, and Jesus says the most important commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, mm -hmm. and strength. So I think we are called to wrestle and wrestle with the rationality, the intellectual side, trying to make sense of Christianity, while at the same time in holding it with equal value the idea of holy mystery, that we are never as mortals who are creatures of God. We are not God. Um, we are made in his image, but we are not him. Um, there are going to be things that we cannot understand and that are going to be um, part of who God is, but they are beyond our capacity to understand. And I don't think those two things are uh, necessarily opposed to each other. No, they're not. And, um, you know, it should... There's got to be a place for mystery, but if one of the all, all denominations acknowledge that that God exists and that He has spoken in the Bible, and that should shock us, that should be absolutely blow our minds that that God would actually speak, and if He speaks through in and through humans in an intelligible way that we can know, it is absolutely essential that we know what He has mm -hmm. to say, mm -hmm. and. Throughout the Bible, especially in uh, the Gospel of John, says that the, the whole purpose of life is to know God. Right. And you can't experience something. I mean, there's a sense you can experience something, but the experience that God intends for us is not an irrational, it's not an, a, a leave your mind at the door kind of thing. It's, a, it's an experience that begins with knowing Him and going deeper into that. I mean, imagine being married and asking this question in some sense. Right. like. Yeah. Um, what's the rationality of, I don't know. So, sacraments are important too because they're visible, tangible experiences of God's love. Yes. Maybe two more questions and then we can 
What advice do you have for those in a Christian relationship who are not engaged or married but are wanting to grow toward a Christian marriage? So one of the things we just said, read Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage. Um, another thing that I would say would be a great thing to do, regardless of whether you're in any kind of relationship at all, if you are interested in the whole idea of Christian marriage, spend some time with Christians who are married, um, who have good, strong marriages, and ask questions to them about that, uh, because that's part of how you learn. Yep. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's really good. Ah, recommended poems from Gerard Manley Hopkins. Oh, I was so hoping that was going to come up. So I got nothing. <laughs> how many of you have ever even heard of Jared Manley Hopkins? All right. That makes me really happy for the rest of you because you have a great treat in store for you. Um, Jared Manley Hopkins is one of the great poets of the English language. Uh, he lived in England in the 19th century, became deeply converted to Christianity while he was a student, and then he became one of the world's great poets. And it's interesting because even though he is profoundly Christian, you will still, any poetry course that you take anywhere <coughs> in college, you will study his poems because they are so amazing. Um, the ones that are, are my favorites, he wrote a poem called God's Grandeur um, that we just talked about in the C.S. Lewis class I teach on the Great Divorce last week. There's another one called Pied Beauty, Pied, P-I-E-D, Beauty. Another one called As Kingfishers Catch Fire. Um, I could go on and on. But one of the things I would really encourage you all to do, I would bet that most of you do not make a practice of reading poetry every week, um, that you probably were glad to get past it in high school, and you might have had a teacher that taught you to the test about poetry. And poetry is designed to really uh, open up your soul and your heart and your mind. And good Christian poetry, like Jared Manley Hopkins or John Donne or T.S. Eliot or people like that, um, if you will take 30 minutes a week and read some of those, it will change your life in a good way. Yep. Okay. I'm going to read you some poems. This is probably our last one. Yeah, you should. I'm, I'm excited for that. Um, this is a question that's come up several times, and I think I don't know if we've answered it, but I'm, it's important because I've, I know I've heard people ask this. In a, and we've said this several times. In essentials, unity. Non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. What, to do, what do we do when different denominations disagree on what the essentials are? So again, in essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, all things charity. The question is, what about when we disagree on what essentials are? It's a great question. Um, I think part of that is what are you using as your standard to define what the essentials are? Um, I would say historically, the church has been pretty clear on that and that whenever anyone is starting to redefine essentials, that is where you get on the slippery slope. But traditionally, I think 
the church, Big C Church, which would include all denominations, um, would say that the, the scriptures and uh, the creeds are the most important reflections of what the Christian faith is. Um, and so the, the easiest way is if somebody's departed from scripture as a standard or departed from the creed as a standard, you can say they've departed from the essentials. Mm -hmm. Now, if you start getting to people that are wanting to redefine what words mean, um, that can be another way of saying you've departed from essentials because that word has meant this for a thousand years and reinventing what that word means is a departure. When you have legitimate disagreements about the interpretation of a scripture passage, that may get a little more gray. So yeah. what would you say? I would say that this is, in my experience, few and far between. Even like across like Baptist, I mean, I was Baptist in college, went to a Presbyterian seminary, Anglican now, been in a lot of different denominations and almost all of them will say pretty clearly what the essentials actually mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. very rarely will you get some who actually say no this you have to be a christian and and be baptized as an adult like no nobody's saying that typically um to join their church maybe but they would say no you can still be a christian like you're just not part of our denomination mm -hmm. so I, I i generally think that that's few and far between but like you said i mean looking at the scriptures okay um, you'll see places like, okay, did Jesus physically rise from the dead? The scriptures are pretty clear that he did. Uh, they go out of their way to do that. You know, should we baptize babies or not? You can make a perfectly valid case either way yep. about that. And so we can, that's where you would say, yeah, we would disagree. And I would usually, in my experience, both sides have the awareness to say, yeah, scripture, obviously there are fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, but the creeds and the scriptures are pretty much what it means, essentials. All right, how are we doing for questions from y'all? That was a lot of history and other random All sorts poetry. Of randomness, which so is why it's so much Give y'all some time to ask what you're interested in. Oh, there we go. Okay, so if everyone wants to go and um, scan the piece of paper around you, like your comments that you would like them to answer, questions, and... Uh, I'll just go ahead and answer. I'm going to ask the first one. Can you explain John 9.25? He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. John 9.35. That is 25. a 25. fabulous passage. Um, if you've never read John chapter 9, please do yourself a favor and go read that whole chapter. It is a detailed story of Jesus' encounter with the man born blind. And Jesus and his disciples happen upon this man, and the disciples immediately say, was it this man's sin or his parents why he was born blind? And then Jesus says, neither is for the glory of God. And then he goes on to heal the man. And um, one of the things that you see in that passage is the unwillingness of the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees, to acknowledge that Jesus could heal this man. And their whole approach to this man is just um, ganging up on him and 
um, insulting him and being awful to him. So that, that's sort of the, the context of what's going on. The man is miraculously healed by Jesus in that particular instance, and that particular verse is what inspired John Newton when he was writing the hymn Amazing Grace. Yeah, so the context, too, like you were saying, is the, the religious leaders are saying, this man is a sinner because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. That's John 9, um, I just lost it, 16. And so they, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs was the response that many said. And that's the whole point of John 9, is that Jesus clearly seems to have an authority and a power that nobody else can understand. And the Pharisees look, well, he's doing these things, but Jesus ends up confronting them and says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm going to do what I want and heal and do good on the Sabbath. And he, um, I love the Gospel of John because he's giving like, symbolic, dramatic parables, actions, like you know, healing a man born blind right after he just said, I'm the light of the world. There, you know, that's the whole, he's, he's bringing light into the world and he does, heals a blind man. Um, so... Yeah, that's that's how we would say it. That's all I gotta say about that. <laughs> how do we manage the working world or our careers in relation to our path that we want for ourselves and the path that God wants us to be on? That is a great question. I think part of what's so challenging about that is that we live in a culture that says your identity is your job and your worth is your job and people are looking to their jobs to provide them with meaning and purpose and identity and one of the things that's really disturbing I don't know if any of y'all um, saw this poll that just came out in the Wall Street Journal um, this week about what's important to people and they haven't done this poll since I think 2018 and there's been a precipitous decline in thinking that having children was important. There's a precipitous decline um, in uh, pretty much anything that is not self-centered. And there's a major increase in the purpose of life is to make money. Hmm. So that that is kind of the, use that good French word, milieu, uh, the, the, the water in which you're swimming. So, to be in that water, you have to be really intentional to try to focus on your spiritual life as the framework for your life that your work is only one part of. So I think a huge part of the answer to that question is developing a framework that involves spiritual disciplines and fellowship and worship and accountability. Because if you have that framework built, then you're not going to be so tempted to have your job be the framework and then you have to fit everything else into that. Yeah, I'd point you back to, we've done vocation, meaning and purpose. How do I know God's call on my life? We've, we've done all those in the past and you've pointed out a, a few things that we've said. You know, typically what, uh, I think we're in a day where, like you said, unless I feel like I'm changing the world, most people in and my generation and below feel like they are then dissatisfied with their work. But that's a really new thing. Mm -hmm. For most of human history, work was seen um, as just a means basically to put food on the table. And, and so 
that's not to say, I mean, God does care about every single work. Like, there's all work is important to God. So wherever you are, you can do that in a, in a unique Christian way and go back and listen to some of the things that we've talked about there. Um, but, yeah, I think recognizing, okay, what, what are the things that God's actually given you passions for? Where have you seen needs in the world around you? And how can you use those giftings and those passions that you have for the context that you're in, meeting needs that are tangible in the world around you? That's. And I would also say, think about the fact that God has put you in a place in the workplace where he has given you a platform to be able to reach out to those people and build friendships. And that may be why you're there. Yeah. Give, it, give it some time, too. I think that's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Like, don't just every two weeks bounce around to the next thing, but give it a little bit of time where you're in. Why are only baptized Christians invited to receive communion in the Christian church? Oh, that's a great question. I don't think a lot of people understand some of this. It's not because we're mean. <laughs> I think that's important to say. Um, so baptism, what is baptism? Baptism is the entrance into the family of God, right? It's, a, it's a, something that took time that people often were trained in the early church to become, what, is, what does this actually mean? Jesus said, count the cost of following me, right? And so the communion is the family meal of the church. It would be really weird to, to not be a part of the family and, and be baptized and, and then to want to take communion. It's not because, like, we want you to take communion, but the first step is then to, okay, let's talk about being a part of the family. First, and so um, that, that it's usually just getting those questions out of order, right? And so I'm actually really excited. We're going to do a couple baptisms on Saturday, and the first communion that they're going to take is going to be Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. So, um, but they were asking the, they're like, "No, I, I know that this is a, a meal for the family of God, and that how you are marked as part of God's family is to receive this sign of, of being baptized." And the other aspect of it is, it is a sacred meal, which means that it is different from the pizza that we're eating tonight. And if we were having pizza, we would say, everybody come eat pizza, whether you're baptized or not. We're delighted for you to eat pizza. But a sacred meal is one that has an aspect of holiness to it. And there is a sacred mystery in Holy Communion uh, that is one of the sacraments. And our understanding of a sacrament is that it's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace and that there is an operation of the Holy Spirit that is going on in that that it would not be appropriate for someone who's not a believer um, to participate in that. I believe Israel translates to those who struggle with God. Can you struggle with God's existence and still call yourself a Christian? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and Israel does mean struggle with God. That's very good, whoever said that. Um, I think one of the things that I most love about Christianity is the understanding that doubt is part of faith. Um, if, if, if there is no doubt at all, it's not faith, it's certainty. And one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, in my mind, uh, is usually uh, the weak or two weeks after Easter, and the disciple Thomas, who was not one of the disciples who witnessed 
Jesus appearing after his resurrection. Remember, none of the disciples really believed Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They were shocked that he rose from the dead. And so the others saw Jesus, but Thomas didn't. And Thomas, to his great credit, was very honest. And imagine how hard that would have been with all these his closest friends who are so excited Jesus is risen from the dead. And Thomas said, unless I can put my hand in his side and put my finger in the wounds in his hand, I will not believe. Well, that's pretty strong doubt right there. And then when Jesus comes and Thomas is there, Jesus does not look at Thomas and say, I smite thee from the earth, thou evil doubter. How could you doubt me? Instead, he says, Thomas, put your hand in my side and put your finger in the nail holes in my hands. No longer be disbelieving, but believe. So he invites Thomas to do exactly what he needed to do in order to resolve his doubts. So I think that doubt um, is not necessarily a bad thing. I think what you do with doubt is the key. And what you see with Thomas is that he brought his doubt to his community, his beloved community, and he brought that doubt to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where sometimes we get off track with doubt. Yeah. Isn't it nice that sometimes, I think a lot of, a lot of us will hear, Oh, ye of little faith. Jesus seems to say that a lot, but that's such a wonderful and compassionate way that he responds to, to Thomas. I think one of the places I would encourage you to go, if that's where you are, is go to the Psalms, because mm-hmm. the Psalms actually help you do exactly what you just said, which is, to be honest, they give words and name the fears and the doubts that we often have in the Christian life. Yeah and they direct them to God. And usually, almost all the time, you'll see a transformation throughout this any given psalm uh, where someone becomes confident again. And just wallowing in doubt is not a virtue, I don't think, but God is big enough to handle where we are and, and bring us to a, a better place in many ways. Yeah, and if you come um, Thursday night, you will hear the choir chanting Psalm 22, which is Jesus's cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. And, you know, I think that that plays into all of this as well. And so um, faith is um, deeply connected with that idea of doubt and choosing to believe uh, in what we know to be true. A couple more. If a Christian ignores the prodding and conviction of the Holy Spirit over time, can that quiet him? Quiet the Holy Spirit? Yes. Uh, It doesn't mean it will absolutely stop the Holy Spirit, but one of the things that is a consistent theme all through Scripture is that when you ignore the prodding of God, that you're pretty confident is the prodding of God, and you ignore God's Word, uh, this phrase that's often used is your heart becomes hardened Mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit can't still get through but the scary thing is there are a few places where it says God gave them over that after multiple 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 promptings um, God stops prompting God stops prompting and says like Burger King have it your way (laughs) yeah 
yeah, it's it's a it's a real thing. Your conscience can become seared. Uh, it to be it's a it's a wonderful thing uh, when God does all these terrible things in Jonah, right? I mean, the storm. He's running away from God, and God is going out of His way to get His attention by causing all these terrible things to happen. And it's usually so that He won't become so hardened that He'll just run away forever, right? So um, being sensitive and responding to those convictions is really really important. How can you pray to want more of the Holy Spirit? Uh, I think you can pray, Lord, give me more of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think that that's a great prayer. And uh, I think that one of the things that you see in Scripture is that there are multiple people that do pray that. And God responds to that prayer. Uh, I think another way to approach that is to go to a Christian friend and say, could we pray together that I would grow in my understanding and experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Yeah, I, I love this question because my wife really, I think really wants more of the Holy Spirit. And that's been one of the things that has just has come up a lot in our relationship. And so I would say, first of all, knowing what, what, who the Holy Spirit is and then what his role is in salvation, what he does. And in many ways, he, his job is to make the, the reality of what Jesus has done real to our hearts. And so at, wanting more of the Holy Spirit is in the same wanting more of Jesus, which is great, and having a deeper experience of that. And so it's, it can be as simple as praying for it or, or going to, to other people as well. But I think also looking at who, who is the Holy Spirit in the scriptures? What does he do? And recognizing that, okay, you can have a really strong relationship and sense of the Holy Spirit and not speak in tongues or some. Usually people equate some of the gifts of the Spirit, like tongues or prophecy. And if you don't do those, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. And I would say, no, that's not, that's not always true, right? And the Holy Spirit will point you to Jesus. And even what we were just talking about in the last question, the conviction of sin is a deeper relationship with the Holy Spirit. So... Recognizing and a deeper relationship with Scripture. With Scripture, yeah. right. So the, the Spirit works in and through the Word of God, uh, never apart from it, and He always points us to Jesus. He convicts us of our sins. He leads us into uh, God's path. So uh, it's not just as narrow as maybe some would say. Well, that's probably a good place to end. Wow, right. I never, those were those questions were all over the place tonight, but yes. those were fun. I enjoyed it's that. It's always good with question polls. So. <clears throat> well, we will be back. It's actually going to be three weeks from today. I'm not going to be here in two weeks, so uh, we're going to wait. Oh, it's good. This week's going to take it out of us, I think, anyway. So <laughs> three weeks from today, we'll be back. We hope April you, 25th. April 25th. We hope we'll see you this week for some of the services, as we mentioned. We're really glad you came out tonight. So. Feel free to stick around, and uh, we'll be around to talk. All right. Thanks for being here.